Hello, welcome to another edition of Seen Anything Good Lately. I'm Jason Solomons and it's my joy today to introduce some more brilliant guests who'll be telling you and me about what they've been doing and what they've been watching. Oh my God, it's the most brilliant police kind of cop drama. I'm still finishing The Last Dance. Um, sorry, another French thing, uh, 10% call, call My Agent. It, it, it's sublime. That's author Charlotte Philby and filmmakers Ian Bonnot and Peter Etegui, you've heard there. Charlotte's got a new novel out. It's called A Double Life, a thriller about two women caught in a web of betrayal and North London spying conspiracies. And Ian and Peter, who together made the award-winning, groundbreaking fashion documentary McQueen in 2018, they now release a beautiful documentary about the Paralympic movement called Rising Phoenix on Netflix. We'll be hearing from all of them about their new works and if they've seen anything good lately after I tell you what I've been up to. I finally read the book Fleischman is in Trouble and I'm very pleased I did so. It's a very modern comedy about a Jewish doctor in New York going through a nasty separation from his wife Rachel and discovering the world of dating apps and the possibilities of sex. It's about his mate Seth and his old friend Libby, who also narrates the story, although you never know it until she starts talking. It's written by Taffy Bodisa Akna, and it jumps from hilarious to bitter to vulnerable and shocking. It's a bit Philip Roth and a bit Lena Dunham, but entirely original and a complete shock uh, in the final stages. Uh, a rather bitter book about marriage and love and where we are now, but also very funny and warm. Toby Fleischman is the new anti-hero of our times. So that's a bit of a must read, really, uh, and I'm glad I've done that now. As for watching, I've enjoyed the new Pinocchio movie from Italy's Matteo Garoni. What a wonderful looking film that is. It's by the director who, in his Napolitan Mafia epic Gomorrah, gave us one of the best films of the 21st century so far. And he now finds the same darkness and violence in the 19th century in that most Italian of fairy tales, Pinocchio. Uh, Garoni also did Dogman and Reality, and he gives us a live action version of Pinocchio here and tries to stick quite closely to that original 1880s story by Carlo Collodi. It stars Roberto Bonini, who actually became a bit of a cropper not that long ago in his own version trying to tell the tale when he played the puppet. Here he's much better as the uh, elderly Geppetto, the poor carpenter who carves his son out of a bit of cursed wood. And the kid in it too is amazing. He's got this CGI mask type face that's one of the most unsettling sort of looks and visages I've ever seen on screen. Uh, it makes it a very creepy family film that wobbles between charming and funny and plain weird uh, and it's I suppose it's a typical Matteo Garoni theme this it's about the harsh contrast between reality and innocence be careful what you wish for I think is what he's saying oh and I've also been watching the football that Champions League playoff situation where they kind of put all the games into one little mini tournament I, listen I, I hope they kind of keep it I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed the progression really enjoyed Bayern Munich beating Barcelona that was amazing I really enjoyed well, all the games including the final which I thought was very close but definitely Bayern Munich won so that was uh, one hell of a drama can't we have that every year 
So there you go. That's me. Now for the guests. And it's time to introduce the amazing Charlotte Philby. She's a writer, a journalist, a mother and granddaughter of infamous spy Kim Philby. Her first book was called Part of the Family. It's a gripping novel about a woman forced to spy eventually on her own family and walk out on it. And she's followed that up with A Double Life, which is out now in paperback. And it's the story of two seemingly unconnected North London women, Gabriella, who works at the Foreign Office, and Isabel, a local beat journalist in Camden, uh, with a drink and drugs problem and someone on her tail after she witnesses something late at night on Hampstead Heath. There are dark forces, is motherhood, a, a lifestyle, pushing both these women into dangerous situations and seemingly glamorous locations. Hi Charlotte, how are you doing? I'm really well, how are you? I'm great, thank you very much. It feels really good to be talking to you, it feels really good to be connecting, especially as your book is full of people who are so shady and difficult to connect with, so I think it's really good to get the real person. Yes, well I am here and there's nothing shady about me, Jason, I promise. <laughs> your book A Double Life deals with women who are caught up in, a, in, in, in the spy game of some sort, one of the most more overtly than the other, Gabriella, who actually works for the Foreign Office. Is this something is that, I mean, it is a world that you know intimately through your through your surname, and we talked about that before. But is it is the actual world of the Foreign Office a world that you know? And did you can you get to research it? How do you get to find out about it? Well, it's not a world that I know at all. Um, other than I've sort of been fascinated by it when I was younger. It's you know sort of being in the Foreign Service was the kind of job that I aspired to. I love the idea of sort of a degree of subterfuge and traveling, and it's sort of uh, lots of parties. It felt like it combined many of my um, favorite things but actually I, I didn't know a huge deal about it so when I decided that she needed to work and Gabriella needed to be based in the foreign office I just got in touch with people and what I found amazing in the process of writing is how generous people are with their knowledge and their time so I know a few people who work there and have worked there and they help me fill in the gaps yeah well I mean it's pretty intimate what I love about it is that it, it, you know it's it's sort of foreign subterfuge and it's that you know dealing with counter-terrorism and terrorism and Moscow and Paris and all around the world and yet it's an office like every other office in some way the office politics are the same as if you were in a, you know, a woman's magazine or a, you know or, or, or a stapling office in Kent well exactly I think that that you know that the human Humanity that is in at the heart of um, how we all sort of communicate with each other at work and it, it sort of goes across the board. But what I loved about when I was asking people about the descriptions was, you know, finding out that there's like this tiny little cost of concession and the fact that all the, you know, the sort of the actual layout of the building made no sense. So, you know, sort of these seemingly arbitrary numbers and letters on each door as if they sort of served to to confuse more than anything which seems to be um one of the aspects of of being in the foreign service so it all felt like it sort of tied together quite neatly and that's very that comes very much to the fore in one of your characters gabriella and the other bit of you that you mentioned there being a news rep- paper reporter uh, comes very much in the other character in a double life isabel who works for i i don't think you think you say it's the camden new journal but it's certainly something that's like the camden new journal a local paper Completely different. Completely way. different. Rival <laughs> publication. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I actually did um, an internship at Camden uh, New Journal when I was doing my NCTJ uh, newspaper training. The interesting thing about this book is that um, the Isabel story I actually wrote 10 years ago when I was on my first maternity leave from the newspaper I was working at, The Independent. I, I only decided to use Isabel's story um, in tandem with Gabriella's story after I'd written Gabriella. So I was suddenly realising that 
this manuscript that I had had languishing in a drawer for 10 years fitted with what I was trying to do and actually it sort of understood that this is perhaps subconsciously what I've been working towards all along or at least since I started writing the Gabriella book not that I had wow I had no idea Charlotte so you literally got it out and thought oh I'll I'll just slot this in or did it need some updating you've become needed a lot because you've become a better writer you can use commas and full stops and semicolons even now semicolons not always in the right place sometimes just you know with a sort of pretentious (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so I feel yeah I definitely had to go through and rework um some of it but a lot of it as it was and I feel that actually there's an integrity to it because I was I was much younger I was only 12 at the time obviously (laughs) well you were a prodigy it's true (laughs) yeah well yeah I loved your first book very much and I loved it because of its North London locations that I know and love and I know that you know and love uh, and you mm. use them very much and and you're in the same milieu again we're a lot in North London yes sometimes you go to, to Richmond and sometimes you go to Moscow uh, mm. uh, but you know essentially they're both sort of North Londoners and they, and they live in the, these areas that we know and they walk to Kentish Town and they go on the heath and uh, places you know were you worried about reusing those same things or did you think that actually that's what I do that's my patch you know like Morse is in Oxford this is where I am I'm gonna I'm gonna it's one of the part of my brand well I've really grappled with it because in one sense I I was concerned about it it made me feel like I really need to to go and live somewhere else because I've always lived in a sort of relatively small area and clearly these are the the only places that I seem to go back to when I'm writing fiction but actually I think it made me realize that what I love is when if you read all three of the books which the third one I'm I'm finishing it well I can't read it yet because you haven't finished it you can't read it now I mean unless you're you could read my mind which would be terrifying but once you do the idea is that you can weave back and and the place you will see sort of snapshots of characters from other books so I decided to use the 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 recurring geographical location as a feature rather than as a (laughs) a, this is very thought out and very clever it is it's all very very well thought out in advance I was even writing things I didn't know I was writing 10 years (laughs) what I love about your your books is that yes they get into the skin of the characters and they're very much about family life and mothers and children and they're they're very emotional and yet you also which quite a lot of writers don't bother with uh, you're quite heavy on plot and plot twists and actually making them exciting and dramatic and that's a that's a real plus I have to say because you 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 have to read on to the end it's not all about style and interior monologue there's real events happening real mystery I have such a short attention span when it comes to reading and I'm so I've become sort of programmed by reading so many crime thrillers that if there aren't constant um twists and turns I sort of get I I find it easy to get bored um if I'm honest (laughs) or you know I, I just always feel like if I can crowbar in another um sort of twist or or something um to make it more compulsive and more pacey I just really enjoy that as a reader and I do feel like there needs to be um the contrast if you don't have the quieter moments then you know that the you need the quieter moments to give power to the the pacier plot line yeah I always think those are the hardest bits to do I I, could, I think one can do you know thinking one can do emotion but actually kind of you know to make people 
heart pound as the as the, you know pounding on the streets and get your heart pounding and what's coming around the next corner and who's going to be lurking uh those i think are, are really skillful bits of writing and difficult to do and that's so uh, I, I watch a lot of movies and obviously that, that happens in movies with music and tension and pacing uh, but to do it in books uh, it seems to me a real skill so congratulations on that and it makes me wonder then have you been if you say you've been watching a lot of crime thrillers i wonder if you've seen anything good lately charlotte philby what have you been watching oh. I have been watching a lot. <laughs> um, I've been trying to think about um, the things that I have most enjoyed. And I would say that the series, I was sort of like, you know, sort of wrote, wrote down some of it and sort of put them into columns. And I would say series are winning out for me at the moment. Yeah. Um, Bosch. Have you ever watched Bosch? Bosch. Bosch. No, what's Bosch? I can tell from your response that you have never watched Bosch. Oh my God, it's the most brilliant crime, like police kind of cop drama set in LA. And there have been, I think it's just been the eighth series, um, which came out on Amazon Prime. And it's just the most phenomenal show. I'm I'm so excited for you that you haven't watched it because you've now got eight, eight series. To Great, because I've really got loads yeah. of time. Uh, <laughs> Bosch is B-O-S-H, like Bosch B-O-S-H. on the head. It's ah. Michael Connolly. It's like it is adapted from a classic sort of series of crime novels. It's about an LA detective, and he lives in this amazing sort of modernist house in the hills, in the Hollywood Hills, which he has bought with the money that he got from advising on a terrible um, but quite commercially successful film based on one of the murders that he. Um, investigate. Oh, cool! That, happen- that actually does happen, so that's that's good. Yeah, it's it's all. I mean, it's all just so obviously meticulously um, researched. That he's the son of a prostitute who was murdered, so he's got like a constant um, thirst for revenge. He's he's sort of dark and brooding, and he's obsessed with jazz. He's sort of who's who plays him again? Titus Welliver. Do you I've, know Titus? No, Welliver? I don't know Titus Welliver. <laughs> Played, uh, he I sounds mean, like he sounds like a, someone who was in the peasants revolt <laughs> i mean he might have done he's he's amazing he's very sort of politically active on twitter so i thought you might have heard him from that no uh, well i should i should i mean it sounds great and it, what so there's the there's the ongoing psychological development of him and then each episode there's a there's a sort of mystery or each series exactly. season there's, yeah. there's a new case and it gets better and better it's you know it's slightly it, it becomes slightly formulaic but in a way that I find you know comforting so it's like Morse and that you sort of know certain things that are going to happen and do I have to start at the very beginning or can I join at season four I think it's worth sort of trying to go through from the beginning if you can brilliant recommendation Bosch that's the first one we've had on this show congratulations on being the first to recommend that (laughs) seen anything else good lately many other good things so i've seen dead to me i are you have you, are you again that? you've stumped me you've stumped no, norris the, <laughs> the adjudicator dead to me yeah it's christine Applegate. i know her yeah so dead to me is sort of a dark comedy i watched it with my nine-year-old daughter which i wouldn't necessarily recommend but she's quite um hardy and enjoyed it and there's quite a lot of swearing and there's murder so it's, but you know it's something that um is sort of light as well as um very dark it's hilarious. It's a sort of, uh, what would you call a bromance, but with two women? Oh, we need a new word. Um, yeah. Femance sounds a bit <laughs> sanitary word. Femance does, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so that's fantastic. And it's a sort of, um, an, again, another American series. Giri Hadji, have you watched? I, I have, I know this one, but I haven't watched it. I'm, I'm a bit, I'm not, I'm going to confess, I'm not a massive anime fan. 
And I know that I know there's sort of a bit of anime in there. And I don't quite know what my animus against anime is. But I, there's something I've got against it. So I, I haven't watched it, but everyone says it's just fantastic, this Giri. Well, it is fantastic, but I, I was actually stumped because I, I read a couple of really bad reviews as well as a couple of, you know, people saying this is the most underrated series of our time. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's like a real epic. It's sort of set between London and Japan. It has Kelly McDonald, and it's just, you know, it's it's brilliant but a lot of people um don't like it and possibly for the reason that you say but i don't know if i would agree with that no i will no, yes I would. It, it's something i need to sort of get over and when i do then i go oh my god that was great you know when i do well because um takeshi Mike, for example the f- filmmaker he sometimes puts bursts of anime into what is you know just a normal film sometimes and it, and it does work uh but normally i kind of think oh i don't know about cartoons <laughs> i still yeah, think it's cartoons there's a really bizarre scene in it where they suddenly all just sort of lurch into this interpretive dance scene, which on the on a rooftop. And if you were to tell me that before I watched it, I would never have watched it. But it was so powerful that it made me weep. Mm. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't work, but it does. And I sort of, you know, it's just, it's brilliant. Charlotte it's Philby, how fantastic to get some of your brilliant recommendations and how fantastic to be gripped by your novel. You see, I haven't finished it yet, Double Life. I'm halfway through, almost precisely halfway through. I'm absolutely <laughs> gripped by these two characters, their two stories, the setting, everything. Uh, and now you tell me there's a third coming along. Well, I don't know what to do. It's a very good idea making three because then you have a get sign a three book deal, don't you? And you, they, you go, yep, it's not finished yet. There is that. And also I've got three children and the, the first two have been dedicated to Rosa and Jesse. So if there's no third, then basically I've just ruined, you know, I've sort of stated um, something terrible to my third child so, so all we know about all good. we know about the third book is that it will be dedicated to your i don't know the name of your youngest Zander. brilliant yeah. so we know that much like that much you'll give away uh because really you do play it close to the chest it must be very exciting to kind of know that you you know the ending when you're writing it and then not to kind of gallop towards it and kind of keep the suspense going i don't always know the ending i think that's really important i interviewed um lee child once um just before I started trying to, to, to write a crime novel for the first time, he said, I never know the ending because otherwise I would be too bored by it before I sat down to write it. And I thought that's completely bonkers. But I sort of have, I totally understand what he means. And now I sort of have an idea of an ending, but I'm sort of tricking myself. So I know what I'm working towards. And then inevitably it completely transforms in the writing. And I think that is what keeps it fresh. That is a very good writer's trick, Charlotte Philby, to leave us with. And finally, given that you're watching so much telly and enjoying it so much and being so good talking about it, there was talk of you making these into telly, Double Life and Part of the Family. Any 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 advance on that that you can give us? Well, I, it's... It, it's it very very much in the final stages of negotiation so things have been sort of rocked by this current period i think everyone's sort of working out their timings and um but there is there there is news to come jason <laughs> oh and will you yes. be are you involved in the writing of it or just in the um, you know what i, I at first I, I've, I've always wanted to uh try screenwriting but i thought i would try with somebody else's work not mine own for the first so no i would not i would like to be involved as a sort of in a consultancy role but i also really understand the power of delegating so <laughs> i'll hand it over to somebody with more experience well and, then... and it's a very good way to learn and then you'll see and then you go oh yeah i could have done that 
Absolutely, exactly. We wish you all the best with uh, Double Life and lovely to catch up with you. And uh, congratulations on that. And the well, let me know when the TV series happens. Or... I will. Yes. I will. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Of course, you will. You'll be dancing <laughs> around, you'll buy yourself a Killing Eve outfit for that. <laughs> Charlotte Philby, thanks so much for joining me. And A Double Life is out now and published by Borough Press, getting great reviews. And my next guests are a directing duo, Ian Bonnot and Peter Ategui. They won awards for the excellent fashion documentary McQueen about the London designer's career and that fantastic exhibition uh, that refocused cultural spotlight on him. And they bring a sharp physical aesthetic now to a new documentary on Netflix. It's called Rising Phoenix and it's about the Paralympics, the athletes who now take part, the politics behind it all and the ethos of its founder Ludwig Gutmann. It looks great and it's a treasure trove of thrilling, moving, personal stories. But dare we call it inspirational? There's a whole area, I suppose, of what what's, what is called inspiration porn amongst you know, um, uh, in disability community, which can kind of, like, you can see that might cause offence to people who, you know, maybe struggle to get through the day, let alone inspire someone else. But I think that what was amazing to us about the Paralympians, and Bebe actually said this great quote, which isn't really in the film, unfortunately, because it didn't quite come out right in in, in the telling um, and would have just taken too much screen time. But she says, you know, with Olympians, you start, if you want to become an Olympian, you start at, at the point of zero and you train and you work all your life to get to 100. And then she says that with a Paralympian, the problem is you start with minus 100 and you have to get to zero. And then you have to get from zero to 100. So you kind of like, I think any athlete's story can be quite inspiring. But with the Paralympians, they have had this whole story that Jean-Baptiste talks about, you know, overcoming great challenges and difficulty and the sort of, apathy uh, or even discrimination of society around them um so i mean you know uh, i think in broad terms i think you know almost using the paralympics as a metaphor for the human condition it is incredibly inspiring and i think what you've done is found a beauty all the way through a savage beauty all the way through this 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 um this exercise the the the, the people themselves are beautiful their stories are beautiful uh, and you the, the story of the paralympics becomes beautiful in a way i don't know you spoke to more of them you spoke to bebby vio as you mentioned and ellie cole and riley bat did you find ian that while you were interviewing them that there was a a, a common thread through them all because as i say they, they, all their stories seem different to me I mean, the common thread is actually by becoming elite athletes and actually getting more and more successful and more and more known. The thing which Peter and I was, you know, really impressed by them is how much they wanted to give back to the community and how much they felt that what they were doing could change people's mind and could change things. I think all of them were in love with their sports. They didn't start the sport to do the message. They were sports people. I was amazed by some of these people. I have to say that I'm I'm no expert on, on Paralympic Games. I, I watched 2012 like you, but it was probably my first introduction to it. First the time I went to see, I went to the Olympic Stadium was for the Paralympic Games. Um, but some of these characters I didn't know, particularly Bebe Vio, the uh, the Italian fencer who you, you, you concentrate on. I mean, what a character she is, Peter. Extraordinary uh, and extraordinarily beautiful. Um, I mean, you know, I just thought she was a, almost a fashion icon. We, we met her um, 
for, I mean, we'd, we'd sort of talked with, um, with her parents. Um, we met her for the first time the night before we started um, a, a three-day shoot in, in Rome with her. And, you know, just her coming into the restaurant, she was, she was late, uh, and she kind of came into the restaurant, this, this sort of like energy and charisma about her that is remarkable. And people were in the restaurant were coming up to her and sort of, they knew in Italy, everyone knows who she is. Um, elsewhere, no one knows who she is. Um, but, you know, she, she was amazing. She, her, her attitude to life and her hunger for life are, you know, they are truly extraordinary. They make you kind of like feel kind of, she picks you up and, you know, you want, you, you, you're just completely transformed by her energy. When I went back to fencing, I said, okay, guys, I'm baby, I'm without the legs and the arms, I just want to do fencing. It's impossible, you know, fencing, you, you do fencing with these three fingers uh, and then the waist. So that's the part that you need. That's the fencing and you don't have this part, so you cannot do fencing. It was impossible at the beginning, but everything is impossible at the beginning. So you just need to, to, to believe in yourself, just go and do whatever you want. Was the idea, I'm assuming, because 2020, we should have been writing the Paralympics now in Tokyo. Uh, in your speaking to some of your subjects and then the Paralympic movement, how was the disappointment over the, all this uh, of, of postponing Tokyo 2020? Or are they all just saying, right, we're just going to look forward to Tokyo 2021, Peter? Well, we didn't, you know, we, we, we interviewed everyone between last July and December was our last interview. Yeah, so, late you know, November. So no one knew about COVID, let alone the cancellation of the Paralympics. We've seen many of them since on Zoom. You know, they're used to this. Yeah. I mean, shit happens. Us, <laughs> shit happens a lot in their lives, but also to their games. And so uh, I think that they 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 kind of go with the go with the flow. They ride those punches, and they'll they'll all come back um, stronger. And they are ready. I mean, the thing about Tokyo, I think that will. Be uh, uh, provided a certain level of disappointment is that they were all they're all so excited about these games. They all think that Tokyo is going to just you know even better smash in it. London. Congratulations, guys! It is yet another beautiful film from you guys. I'm going to ask you now, though, uh, if you've seen anything good lately, Ian Bonnot. What have you been watching? I'm still finishing the Last Dance. I'm one of those little kid from Switzerland which completely fell in love with American culture in the 80s, and my room was. Like literally, I even still got some of the 1980s um, hair Jordan pair that I bought and I never used. The, but in Docs, uh, we were talking about um, the Putin one. I really enjoyed the Putin one, didn't we, Peter? Yeah. We just watched that both. You know, in terms of the documentary, the space where we work in, that was a very good. Uh, that was a very. Which is good, this uh, one? I don't know this. What this? What this one about Putin? Uh, yeah, it's uh, how is it called, Peter? You always remember the names. <laughs> Putin, the something Putin and the spy. Spy. It was really well tailored and really well very interesting because he's you know he's a he's a presence now he's moved he's managed to win that vote so he'll be easily in power to 2035 so he will be for our personal lives he will be probably the only leader he'll be 
the thread of our lives yeah. in our culture. It'll always be there. Yeah. <laughs> and what about uh, what about? Uh, have you managed to watch any movies? I know when it's hard, you're, you're finishing a doc, uh, uh, Peter, and getting it out there. But have you been watching any any movies or TV well, shows? Funnily enough, last night I, I should preface this by saying that one of the things that that, that not brought in and I together because we were already working together, but sort of we realised that, that there's something um, a bit tainted about about our partnership was when we realised that each other's favourite film uh, or one of each other's favourite films was Au Revoir Les Enfants by Louis Malle. Mine too. I got an HDMI cable and plugged it into a tiny, tiny little portable projector that I got in London. And we did an improvised screen outside here. We were in the Dordogne, which is, you know, not very far away from where this film was shot. And we watched um, La Combe du Sien, which is Louis Malle's, it's the first film, it's almost like his first draft of Au Revoir Les Enfants. And it's an extraordinary story of the occupation. We watched it outside on a kind of like big screen. And it was just amazing because it was actually like a proper movie experience. You know, our, our, our kids, no one was on their phones. Yeah, Everyone was just absorbed and immersed in this experience. And it made me kind of realise just how much uh, I've actually missed the... the not cinema per se, but just the, that experience. Brilliant. I, I love your Louis Mal uh, references. They're both Au Revoir Les Enfants and La Combe Lucien. Brilliant, brilliant films, uh, uh, Peter. Now you're on Netflix, of course. Is that uh, some something, uh, a world that you've been exploring, Peter? A bit of Netflix? What are you catching on Netflix? Yeah, I mean, inevitably, um, you, we do. I mean, two of my favourite things during lockdown were... Uh, um, sorry, another French thing, uh, 10%, call, call My Agent. We love 10%. Is, we like, love Call My Agent here. It, it, it's sublime. And it was just, I mean, it was the second time we watched the, <laughs> watched it, actually, and it was just the exact tonic. And then uh, the other thing I, I, I was telling What's you What's your favourite? Have you got a favourite episode? I just got, just because I love Call My Agent, I haven't talked about it for a while. There's, I mean, love the I, one, they would go to Cannes, is great. There's the... I love Cannes with Juliette Binoche. I think that's that that is... Fantastic. There's a, there's a hilarious Huppert one as well, uh, Elizabeth Isabelle Huppert, when she kind of wanders around filming with a kind of a, was it a Korean director is in her flat? I think it's like Hon Sang Soo. It's supposed to be. She's always off filming something at some point. <laughs> that exactly, and they have to sort of, and it turns into a classic French farce. Um, uh, but 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 also the one with Natalie Bai and her daughter. Yeah, brilliant. Whose uh, name I'm really sorry, I can't remember her daughter, but she's also a very well known actress. Is it Laura Smet? Yeah. Laura Smet, exactly. So the two of them together, ripping off each other and their mother-daughter relationship is just superb. But I also love, I mean, you know, the, the, the main cast, the, the agency cast, yeah. um, uh, they are all just such wonderful actors. Great to see them doing doing really well as well as a result of Call My Agent. They were None of them I knew before, I have to say, but now we're seeing uh, the girl who plays Cecile popping up in Killing Eve and she's getting her own movies now. They're all getting really big hits from it. I think it's the new... I think that's the, that's the great thing with series is that you can take a little bit of a chance with some a bit less known people, but if it rubs perfectly your character and and actually you've got less expectation, as in it's the movies that rely on the names and then if, you know the audiences get a bit bored to see the same faces yeah i don't know if they do with netflix you know that's the, it seems you know something like the eddie which was set in paris as well had a sort of strong parisian cast not that well known and documentaries are doing so well on netflix you know like your your film becomes not just a doc it becomes 
uh, yeah, a movie that's in the, itself. That's the great thing about about Netflix. And I, I remember when I was working on the Brando film with with John Batsek and Stephen Riley. We went to LA for the Independent Documentary Awards, and it was just a moment of sort of like because Netflix were very heavily involved in the sponsorship of the IDAs, and you know you suddenly become aware of Netflix as this really committed to documentary and this force in documentary, and um, uh, and of course not everything, not every prize winner was a was a Netflix film. Of course uh, but but they sponsored so many categories netflix have, have really committed to documentary and the emergence of documentary as a force in contemporary filmmaking um is is largely i think due to netflix in the way that you know we don't want to talk too much about about weinstein but miramax and the in the late 80s and early 90s, mid 90s, it was such an important force in independent cinema. I really know. think as well the concept of Netflix where you've got a catalogue of film. I think for many people, you might not go to the cinema or buy a documentary. So the fact that it's there and it's part of your subscription, does that make sense? I think there's still in people's mind where the film costed less money, I should see it on TV, but now TV is sort of you know, changing. So the fact that they're there, you might have watched the two, three things you really wanted to watch that you, that's why you got on Netflix and suddenly it's like, oh, that's something really interesting or something, it's a subject matter I wouldn't know about. And I think Netflix allowed that. Well, because, well, let's play, let's play a slight algorithms. That's why I do this show in a way. If you're, if I'm watching Rising Phoenix, where would you, it might suggest all oh, that you might want to see this one or that one. Where would you suggest a couple of things uh, if you see your film or even before you see your film to, are there, are there sort of tangentially like, either thematic or aesthetic things that, that are related to your film or is, is there a, another movie that one can watch about the Olympic movement what would you suggest uh, to anyone who was watching Rising Phoenix that they could watch next I watched Crip Camp uh, which um, is a you know is a really beautiful film about the disability rights movement that kind of almost came out of this summer camp um, for kids with impairments and, and quite severe disabilities in some cases and out of their relationships and out of their sort of like talking together about uh, about their lives outside the crip, crip camp as they called it back in normal society came the um the a kind of civil rights movement resulted in the uh, americans with disabilities um act so that's a that was definitely a, a film and then the other thing that we, we i remember we talked about quite a bit because in a way it's the dark side of the coin um to our film is icarus Oh Which, yes, Ian, you, you you turned me onto that. We had to potentially talk about the issue of Russian doping, as well, which was within the Brazil section of our film, which we alleged to it, but we didn't. We actually left it to the side because it was one theme too many. But it was really interesting to watch that film, and that is the typical. That's the opposite of our film, isn't it, Peter? Where the, the filmmaker went on to do something and he just discovered, he stumbled onto a story that became so big and then he ran with it, which we tend to look back at certain periods so we can control what we're doing. So it's a completely different thing, but it's a brilliant film. No, those would be it. very good pair. And I, I was reminded in the story of uh, your French uh, subject, Jean-Baptiste Alizé, of uh, Songhoi Blues, who were a Malian group. And yes. there, there was a, there's, a, there's a film called um, They Will Have to Kill Us First. About yeah, sort of like, it. it's either banning music, but those are these are made of, of beggars from the streets, aren't they? Uh, Songhoi Blues, I mean, amazing. It's kind of like a sub. Um, uh, um, uh, I think it's Timbuktu. They get yeah. they got take, get taken over by uh, an affiliate of Al Qaeda, and so music was 
prohibited. Um, and the musicians of Songhai Blues sort of left home and went to Mali. And yeah, it's a that, that's that's a it's a very powerful story. The music, funny enough, we were listening to the music in the car on the way driving down to down to where I am at the moment in France. And um, it's it's such a it's it's an amazing amazing soundtrack amazing oh but not the soundtrack <laughs> yeah yeah it is an amazing film but yeah it is about trying to trying to stop you playing if you you know if, if, you, if you want to sit with that kind of overcoming that uh i suppose uh impairments if you like there are some ama- amazing uh, uh stories about that yeah we should amazing. talk about the amazing score of rising phoenix as well i was going to ask well, you actually well if you've been listening to anything uh ian but not now you mentioned but an amazing score an amazing um rap song at the end as well hip-hop track who's that by daniel wrote it and basically daniel they, pemberton this, this is your, your yes composer. The, sorry the composer daniel wanted to make one song isn't it peter he, he had created that amazing soundtrack but he wanted to reuse the main theme and sort of almost put everything together that he had developed in terms of the, the the musical themes and the emotion into one track and we were talking about bringing a big name to it and i don't think peter and i were completely convinced by all the names but we were like you know the producer thought he'll bring a lot of publicity which you know you always want people to go you see your film so anything that can happen but at some point we came across a, a sort of crew of uh hip-hop artists from the us which they all share disability and which was just like oh the texture of the voices were interesting and stuff. And, and Daniel was already thinking and he was starting to work with with um, with musician with a disability, classical musician with disability for the score itself. So that kind of got worked in and all those big names kind of, you know, dumped us. Like that's the story of the Paralympics. <laughs> but basically we relied on ourselves and the people who are part of that community. And I think created a, a track which is absolutely uh, amazing and and there's three uh singer on it um tony hickman uh george george tragic and um it's yeah. um keith jones uh, keith jones and Sorry, so what, what are they called themselves now as a as a group well the collective that from from whom we source the musicians is called crit pop but the, these three musicians who co-created this track with daniel have no i don't think they've ever met each other <sighs> that, that one is in new york in three, one's in houston yeah. texas the other is in San Francisco. So, you know, um, but it's, it's really, it's re- one of the lovely things about doing this whole process is that you start seeing these relationships between your people, that, you know, so I, I, I see on uh, Insta and Twitter that they're kind of now communicating with each other. It's also really lovely to see our athletes are communicating with each other as, you know, so yeah uh gents it's been fantastic talking to you about your amazing film rising phoenix which i absolutely loved i was completely hooked by it merci beaucoup thank you very much indeed and we'll speak to you soon merci jason ciao there's a young boy walking through obstacles cut up from all the surgery prosthetic picture perjury telling me i'm normal but normal they never really made me see they always painted me discriminated but levitated through all the hated seats so i redrew Yep, Crip Hop Nation is the name of the group made up of rappers with disabilities. It's the title track that plays out over the closing credits of Rising Phoenix, made by my guests you just heard there, Ian Bonot and Peter Ategui. 
And that brings us to a close for this week's Seen Anything Good Lately. Some wonderful recommendations in there, as usual. And I should say that the documentary about the African musicians I was trying to come up with and talking about with Ian and Peter, there was not Songhoi Blues. Brilliant, though they are, and the, the film about them is. But what I was meaning to talk about was the film Benda Bilili, which is about disabled musicians on the streets of Kinshasa who went all the way to fame. And the film went to the Cannes Film Festival. It was a 2010 doc about them and how they, they just went to stardom and playing at WOMAD and everything. It's amazing stuff. Benda Bilili and definitely one to add to the list this week, along with Charlotte's Jazz Detective Bosch and Peter's Louis Mal retrospective and Black Homme Lucien, uh, among much else, of course. I hope you enjoyed it all. Keep listening, watching and reading and let me know what you're into by emailing me at saggle at jasonsolomons.com and I'll be back next week for another episode of Seen Anything Good Lately. See you then. Thank you.